It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, and watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV Plus. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Red, what are we going to do? We won the election, and it's not fair to take it away from us like this. That now infamous phone call from former President Donald Trump to the Georgia Secretary of State to find just enough votes to flip the state to him is at the center of the investigation by the Fulton County District Attorney into criminal interference in the 2020 presidential election. In May, District Attorney Fannie Willis took the unusual step of requesting a special grand jury. And in an interview with CNN, she was clear about her intent to cast a wide net, including the selection of a fake slate of Trump electors in Georgia. We are going to look at anything connected with um, interference with the 2020 election. And so I've allowed that to be a broad scope, not just the president's phone call that you played there, but other things that indicate that there may have been interference with that election to include fake electorate. Now it appears she may be closer to announcing charges. Willis has sent so-called target letters to 16 Republicans who served as fake Trump electors to warn them that they could be indicted. My guest is Michael Moore, the former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia and a partner with Moore Hall. Did Willis really have to call a special grand jury? Because that special grand jury can indict. Well, she's using the special grand jury because her, she's limited on what she can do investigative-wise with a regular criminal grand jury in Georgia. So in Georgia, the criminal grand jury, the rule is that you have to present them with an indictment. We would call it laying an indictment on the table before the grand jury. And that would mean that you had already you know, determined which parties you were going to ask to indict, what charges specifically you were going to ask to indict on. And she didn't have that information yet. Now, she could have done that on some limited charges, sort of a targeted approach. But here, she's using the special grand jury statute to allow her to investigate. And that's sort of the difference in federal and state grand juries. The federal grand jury has the power to issue subpoenas, to investigate cases, to call witnesses before them as they seem appropriate. And the special grand jury mirrors a little bit of the federal grand jury. The only difference, as you mentioned, is that this special grand jury does not have the power under the state statute to issue an indictment. They would simply issue a a report or a recommendation 
that'd be given to her and to the court. And she would then make a decision whether or not she then wants to present a limited case to a regular criminal grand jury. So she's using this to gather information, to bring in witnesses who may have been reluctant to testify, to gather documents and text messages, this kind of thing. And then she'll ultimately make a decision on whether or not she wants to present that to a to a regular criminal grand jury. Michael, what does it tell you that Willis sent these target letters? It's an interesting play of events right now. That is, I think there's some interest in this fake elector scheme, and she has been digging into that. You wouldn't have to look very hard to, to feel like that she's, in fact, expanding the scope of what could have been a very narrowly tailored case, a clean-cut case against Trump if she wanted to do it based on the telephone call to Raffensperger. But it appears that she's broadening it out to other people maybe in that orbit or closer to the inner circle and dealing with the efforts to basically void out the electors who were from Georgia and to void out the votes that have been cast here. So I'm not surprised to see her do that. It's a little interesting that she would do it in such a public way, especially given some of the political alliances that she has. And I think that may come into play here that she has actually sent out such a notice in the middle of a heated campaign season. Because typically, you don't always see a prosecutor be quite as public about those types of things, and I think for good reason. So I think she's clearly broadened the scope. I think she may be fishing with a little bit too broad a net right now because sometimes that's where you get caught, you know, you get tangled up in your own net. And I think some of the public comments about the target letters, who they went to, and the timing of them may open raise some questions down the road to the appellate courts. She last week subpoenaed members of Trump's inner circle, former lawyer mm-hmm. Rudy Giuliani, Senator Lindsey Graham, six other attorneys. And Graham has already indicated that he's going to fight it. So this will drag out if she's trying to get people from out of state. It will. And I think, you know, there you've seen, I think it was yesterday or the day before, a Georgia congressman. And he also now has served notice that he intends to have the challenge heard in the federal court. I think there's a federal court hearing set up for next week that's been scheduled there on the challenge and subpoena issued to him. There's a specific provision under the federal statutes that allows for sort of a, a high-ranking member of the executive branch, if there's a civil or criminal action in which there are allegations against you, that you can serve notice and ask that the case be transferred to the federal court. I think you're going to see them taking advantage of that. And it's a good process in the sense that it sort of limits overreach by DAs who may be aggressive, I'm not saying she is in this case, but as a general principle, it's, it's a sort of a safety valve there. But it also is, is naturally going to drag out the time. And her grand jury is authorized, the special purpose grand jury is authorized to convene for about a year. But you also have to be thinking that we're getting into election season. And prosecutors must be, they must be conscious of how the actions that they undertake may be perceived around election time. You simply cannot, if the goal is to preserve the confidence in the court system and in the prosecutor's decisions and then charging decisions that are made, you cannot be seen as somebody who's attempted to use the criminal process to influence the outcome of an election. You'll remember that was one of the big issues with Trump and the Department of Justice. I mean, he wanted to use the department sort of to look at political enemies. Well, you can't do that as a prosecutor. I mean, there are bar implications, there are code of ethics implications, and so the timing may become a factor for her. And the longer this goes out, whether we're in the federal court having federal judges rule on motions to quash that may be filed for certain subpoenas, or whether or not we're in the appellate court system because there are privilege issues and attorney-client protection issues that come up, then that is naturally going to delay 
ultimately this this special grand purpose grand jury issuing their report. Thinking about all the evidence she started out with, including that taped phone call, and now she also has the testimony she's taken from state officials. I'm wondering why it's taking so long for her to decide whether or not to indict Trump. Sure. And I think that's a question is well placed. I don't think there's any question she could have based on the tape recording that she had, which is fortuitous. I mean, how many times do you get basically a recorded confession? <laughs> she could have tried to bring charges forward in a regular grand jury without the need for the special grand jury. She simply could have, you know, in between two regular alleged felons, she could have stuck the Trump indictment right in the middle of it, and, and the grand jury could decide whether or not they were going to issue the indictment. You know, I understand that she may have had some reticence on the part of Raffensperger, who was at the time in the middle of a heated primary battle. And he may have, in fact, been reticent to come forward because it would have appeared that he was cooperating against the former president. But she had the recording. And so it tells me that she's simply broadened it out, that she's looking for other people who may have been involved in the planning or the efforts to overturn at least the vote totals in Georgia and making it more of a, I guess, more of a spider web in which she can catch more flies as opposed to just to simply sort of the clean cut case. At the end of the day, I don't know if that will have been the right call. And again, I don't, I don't want to second guess every Everything she's doing. I mean, she may have and does have access to facts and evidence that I don't have and the public doesn't have. But as you look at it, I mean, one principle usually remains true, and that is that when you keep it simple, it often makes for a better case. It's easier to prove. It makes less confusion for a jury. It, it creates less defenses. It also creates less appellate issues that would be ultimately decided by appellate courts, which in Georgia, as you may know, our appellate courts are basically controlled by Republican appointees. They're good judges and friends of mine and such, but you have to wonder about the survival of of some of these allegations that may be pushing the envelope a little bit if they got to the appellate courts. In recent court filings, she has indicated, I understand, that charges including racketeering and conspiracy are being considered. That would become a really complicated case, wouldn't it? It's an extraordinarily complicated case. And you think about racketeering and conspiracy cases when you think about organized crime rings. And, you know, if you were trying to bring down a mafia family in New York, you might be talking about racketeering cases. Or you're bringing down a, a drug distribution enterprise somewhere. You think about RICO cases, uh, conspiracy cases. And so it is legally permissible, I will say, in in circumstances. The question is whether or not it's wise in a case like this. There are many prosecutors who would tell you that you should not consider sort of the policy implications and what may be out there other than just following the facts and following the evidence. We're a little bit in uncharted waters here. No, not a little bit. We just off the deep end in uncharted waters. And that is that, you know, we're talking about whether or not an indictment is going to issue for a former president for conduct that he is alleged to have committed while, in fact, he was president of the United States. And you have to consider that. And you have to consider what it means for the country, for the future, people who hold that office. And again, I think the appellate courts, uh, whether we're talking about the Supreme Court of Georgia, whether we're talking about the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, the Federal Appellate Court, or whether we're talking about the United States Supreme Court, I think they're going to be cognizant of the fact that this could be setting a precedent that is dangerous. And so when you overreach and when you sort of fish with too big a net, you bring a lot of these issues at play. If you had taken a simple approach and you said, look, I, I, as a prosecutor, I feel like this call to Raffensperger was, in fact, illegal, that it was an effort to put pressure on an elections official, that it was an effort to solicit somebody to commit election fraud, and this is a very clear case, or 
you say, well, look, there's evidence of witness tampering. And I'm thinking now about the Department of Justice looking at if, in fact, the allegations coming out from the January 6th committee are true. Do you look at those and say, well, that was conduct committed post-presidency? That's something that may not have those same uh, policy implications going forward. Those seem to me to be much cleaner cases for appellate courts to decide, and I think maybe less dangerous as a precedent going forward. Again, we've not faced this, and I can tell you state DAs don't face this, where they have to sit down and make a decision on whether or not they're going to indict a former president. And so um, it's a little bit maybe some decisions may be a little bit made on the fly. I think there's no textbook to go back and look at this and decide, this is how we ought to do it, this is what we're going to do. I just worry sometimes that complicating a case, as I say, not only gives issues for the defense and the appellate courts, it makes it more confusing for a jury, and it brings in other factors that I think in reality we have to consider. Aside from that, does she have the chops to prosecute a former president? Because we've seen that the new Manhattan DA doesn't seem to. He backed off that case as soon as he got into office. Well, she's a good lawyer. She's a good prosecutor. She has experience, and again, not second-guessing her at all. If you think about it from sort of a general rule or general principle, I think it's better if we're talking about the Department of Justice acting when it comes to a case like this than just a local DA. I mean, think about what happens if Joe Biden goes to Texas and he makes a speech near the border about America welcoming all people and all people ought to come, and you know, and then suddenly... Some local DA decides that they're going to prosecute Joe Biden for soliciting people to commit immigration crimes or something. You know, that may sound extreme, but we're in extreme waters here. And so I think you have to think about it that way. You know, the Congress, obviously, they wrote a statute that says that when this kind of thing happens, you can ask that it be transferred to the federal courts. So that strikes me as a place where this type of case is probably more appropriately heard. Prosecutors have a duty to prosecute crimes within their jurisdiction if they think that something is there. She clearly has moved forward with some belief that she thinks there may be evidence of a crime committed. But again, you are talking about prosecuting for a state crime, a former president for crimes that he committed while he was president of the United States. And that we take Trump out of it and bring in, and you can choose, you know, bring in whoever you believe was the most beloved president in history. I'm sure you may find some state prosecutor somewhere who disagreed with something that he had done. Would it be appropriate for that state prosecutor to indict that president for crimes that he committed while he was president of the United States? And that's a question I think that is looming out as we have these kind of discussions. A lot of people say that the Georgia investigation is the most serious case facing Trump. Do you disagree with that then? I disagree in the sense that I think a case brought forward by the Department of Justice would be the most serious case, no matter what that case may be. And really the reason is this. I think the likelihood that you would ever find the former president sitting in a Georgia penitentiary is slim to none. I just don't think that's going to happen. And even just logistics, just because he would have been convicted of that crime, the former president's act doesn't deprive him of Secret Service protection. So I don't think you're going to find the Secret Service bunking up with him, you know, at the state prison. And I just don't think it's going to happen. So when I think about cases and whether or not they're serious, jail time sort of off the table. I do think there's something to be said about the message that it sends to have the United States Department of Justice move forward on the case with, you know, career prosecutors that are to be apolitical and for any allegations against essentially the chief executive of the United States. And I don't know if they'll be able to produce the evidence to prove their allegation or not. But if, in fact, they can prove that either the former president ordered someone to try to influence a witness or he himself tried to influence a witness through this telephone call, if they're able to tie those ends together, I think that makes a pretty strong rope that would be used to tie a knot around it. 
that to me is conduct, again, not to repeat myself, but when I look at it, I think about conduct that would be performed after he was president of the United States. You know, we have an impeachment process that is really supposed to clean up messes about ineptitude. And we have a 25th Amendment process. Just because somebody is reckless while they're in office or somebody is negligent while they're in office or somebody is derelict as part of his duties while in office, that's why we have the impeachment process for a president. That's why we have a uh, uh, 25th Amendment process for the cabin to come in if they think that there's been some here. I think that, you know, looking back and, and based on the evidence that we've seen, we can say, or at least I will say, hopefully, I think the Senate failed. I think they, they, that there was a clear evidence that would have supported a conviction on the impeachment charges. They didn't do that. And that is our system. So are we then just going to rely on state DAs to do the job that the, that the Senate didn't do? And um, I would just lean toward the fact that I think that Charges brought by the United States Department of Justice would end up being not only more serious, but would sort of carry the weight of the justice system behind behind those charges. Is Trump's intent the biggest problem in all these, the biggest challenge in all these cases? It's certainly a required element of, for criminal prosecution. Intent is a sort of a, the cornerstone for bringing criminal charges. And I think it's come to play in a number of cases. So in, in the Georgia case, for instance, the telephone call. Well, you know, I can think of ways that you could argue that he was simply a candidate who was calling saying, can't we find more votes? Can't you just find me 12,000 12, votes, 11,780 votes, whatever it was, to, so I can overcome this deficit? I mean, I can I can think of ways you could argue that. I mean, I'm not, that's not how I happen to feel about his call, but I could I could see how somebody could make that argument. He didn't really have the intent. He was simply a, a losing candidate who was searching for ways to overcome an elect election deficit. When you think about any of the allegations against him, I mean, there's been much made about you know whether or not his direction to allow people to come into the, the speech on January 6th and not worried about going through metal detectors. And somehow that's some indication that he was intending to send them down to the, to the Capitol. Well, it could also be argued that he's just a narcissist and he's trying to build his crowd size, which we know from Inauguration Day forward has been a, a cornerstone for him or Something that's of extraordinary importance. How many people show up at his rallies? How many people attended his inauguration? How big is the crowd coming to hear him? And is he adored by his fans? And so you can make arguments, I think, you know, one way or another. That's why things like emails, that's why things like text messages, that's why direct statements that people bring in and not just hearsay statements, that, that to me uh, is important in proving intent. I, you know, we, we, we really uh, have to be careful not to. Uh, as we talk about charges against a former president, you know, we don't need to just get kind of lost in our own echo chamber. You know, the fact that he threw a plate against a wall and some ketchup was on the wall, or, or the fact that he slammed his hands on a desk and yelled at people in a meeting. Well, let me tell you, my belief at the bottom of my heart is that it's not the first time a plate's been thrown in the White House, <laughs> nor is it the first time somebody <laughs> has yelled in the Oval Office. And so it makes for sexy commentary, but it's not necessarily, I think, indicative of intent and it, it may be out of what we'd call societal norms and and social graces but I, 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 that's not enough in and of itself to, 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 to prove a criminal intent it's a big burden and it should be when you're talking about people's liberty and, and proving that they did a, a violate a criminal statute it's a it's a big burden and we want it to be and we don't want to shift that or change that just because it might fit trump's scenario. We still want prosecutors to have to prove intent. And that's why they're, I think, going through the witnesses. And at the end of the day, 
we're, we're seeing witnesses subpoenaed even in the federal grand jury case to find out, was there any direct communication, were there any direct orders or commands from Trump? You don't prosecute inner circles, you know, outside of conspiracy charges we've talked about, but you have to look and see, can I prove it? If you think about it this way, so think about the Godfather, and he sends a direct command to somebody. Well, the fact that the horse head ends up being in somebody's bed in the Godfather, unless you can prove that the Godfather ordered it to be sent, you can't prove his intent. But if you've got somebody who said, the Godfather told me to cut the horse head off and take it to so-and-so's bed, that's a different thing. And so they've got to sort of get to that place and, and build that bridge between both the facts and, and the allegations. And that's, that's where intent comes in. She hasn't ruled out subpoenaing Trump. But if right. she's after Trump, if he's the target, can she subpoena him or should she subpoena him? She should not subpoena him. I mean, generally a prosecutor would not be putting somebody up who's a target just to claim the Fifth Amendment in front of the grand jury. So I would I would be surprised that, that she would be subpoenaing him. It may be that she's talking about if she's wanting to subpoena him for evidence in another case and he's not a target, but I, I can't believe at this stage. And that's a, that's a great example, too, of um, you know folks who say, well, prosecutors shouldn't take into account policy and they should just move forward based on the facts and evidence. And Anybody who believes that somehow this case is not being handled differently because it's a former president, let me just ask him to tell me how many special grand juries are going on in Fulton County right now. Of course it's being handled different because it's a former president. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, we know that. And so I think it, it would be a mistake to subpoena him in and with the legal challenges that would come with that. And I also think that, that prosecutors generally are, they know not to bring in people who have constitutional rights, even if they were the former president. They certainly have constitutional rights to take the fifth, and you typically don't bring them in. You never see that, and I don't think you'll be able to point, or, or folks in the DA's office will be able to point to cases where they bring in criminal defendants to basically sit there in front of a grand jury and say, well, I'm going to make you take the fifth in front of this grand jury. You don't often see that. You have cases where you bring people in and say, well, I'll give you immunity to testify, and we're going to allow you to have use of immunity here. But I just would be surprised if she actually subpoenaed him to come in and testify in a case against himself. Thanks, Michael. That's Michael Moore of Moore Hall. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. 
It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Michael Novak was once the most powerful person in the gold market. Now he's on trial with two other former J.P. Morgan Chase employees for operating a criminal conspiracy inside one of Wall Street's largest banks, facing decades in prison. Prosecutors say a corrupt group of traders and sales staff manipulated gold and silver markets for the benefit of the bank and its prized clients, scamming the market for years with so-called spoofing trades. Joining me is securities law expert James Cox, a professor at Duke Law School. Jim, explain what spoofing is. Well, spoofing is, is to keep this on simple ground, is submitting an order to buy or an order to sell without the intent of really wanting to buy it or sell at a price the order is stated. And it's intended to lure the unsuspecting into thinking that the market is moving one direction or another. So the whole purpose of spoofing isn't to close an order, but rather to create the impression that prices are moving or likely to move in a certain direction because of a buildup of demand, demand on the sell side or demand on the buy side. So all it is is a false order that's being sent to the marketplace and a series of false orders to create an idea that there's like a surge of prices. For example, let's assume that you send a whole bunch of false orders to buy. It creates the image that there's a lot of demand out there at $10 and maybe the price will go up to 1010 and so, therefore, you should be wanting to go out and buy in the market at 10 or 10.05 with the expectation that those markets will suddenly go up to 10.10. So you go out in the market and you're willing to pay more than the current market price of 10 because you think it's going to go up to 10.05 and you close at 10.05 and the market stays at 10. So you've gotten clipped. So the whole idea of spoofing is to dupe another person to believing that there's a shift in the marketplace. So now, in this case, unlike past cases of alleged trading fraud, the prosecutors have sort of upped the ante here. They're accusing the defendants of a racketeering conspiracy. That's a law you usually see more with the mafia than banks. This is true. They're using RICO and other legislation that's been passed over the decades. It's designed to go after purposeful, intentional misconduct. We rarely see that used in most securities or commodities cases, but they're doing it in this case. And I believe it's the fact that we now find that certainly with this administration, when you look at who the U.S. attorneys are, who's at the SEC, who's at the Commodities Future Trading Commission, those are all now democratically controlled prosecutor offices. And there has been the belief that the markets have gotten more and more corrupt through a variety of practices, not just spoofing. But spoofing is one of those practices where it's rampant. And what's interesting in the case that's being prosecuted now is that part of the defense is the 
fact that, look, I came in, I was a young broker here, and I saw how things were working, and people did this practice, which turns out to be spoofing, doing it all the time, and I just thought that was normal and routine processes, and I had no corrupt criminal intent behind it. And the fact that that defense in this case has some salience to itself, where I think that that could be actually the key defense to this case, is that everybody's doing it indicates that this is a pervasive problem, but it also explains why we're suddenly seeing spoofing cases being brought, and particularly this spoofing case being brought in the criminal arena. That is, that this is not a question of just getting an injunction against somebody, making them disgorge the commissions that they may have earned by spoofing, or maybe even the gains that they made by spoofing. This is to perhaps put somebody away for some period of time in prison. And the reason for that is that the markets are filled with spoofing. Some of the prosecution's witnesses are former traders who are cooperating after pleading guilty. So would they be able to testify as to what the intent was? Yes. You know, the important thing is to describe the phenomenon so the trier of fact can really understand why this is manipulative conduct and not legitimate business practices. So they would be explaining that to explain the consequences of the misconduct. So the witnesses are doing that. And I think that they're also going to be helpful in describing the likely mental state of the defendants in this case. That is, that brokers all knew that this conduct was illegal that it was pervasively practiced and it was a way to making money and that there were victims, not those who were practicing spoofing, but rather the other traders on the other side who were innocent and were victimized by false appearances about market movements. So I think that all of that's important. And the fact that they've been able to get some other traders to cooperate while at the same time admitting that they had engaged in this conduct, makes it more likely that the defendants in this case could be found guilty. According to the defense, evidence at the trial will show that the vast majority of all market orders are canceled, and the typical lifespan of an order is just a couple of seconds. And I think that that was an understanding pretty much in the literature for some time, that spoofing has been a problem. It's surprising that it took as long as it did to be prescribed as a violation. And it's surprising that we haven't had more cases brought. You know, it's hard to say this is going to be a watershed case, but it's certainly going to be a case that's going to change industry practices if the prosecution sticks. Federal prosecutors have been going after spoofing for years, haven't they? They have been, and they're they're complicated cases. You know, the difficulty you have is The defendants are well aware that they're probably in better shape if they can have the case before not a judge, but have the trier of fact be a jury, since it's a criminal case. Because juries are persuaded by the many times the equities. When a defendant comes in and says, well, gee, this wasn't manipulative because everybody was doing it. It was just a practice, and everybody knew what was going on out there. Prosecutor can say what they want to about that they're innocent people who don't expect there to be spoofing, but at the same time, the defense that everybody's doing it has had an effect on juries. Thanks, Jim. That's James Cox of Duke Law School. Coming up, we'll talk to Bloomberg Special Medals reporter Eddie Spence, who's covering the trial. We've been talking about the trial of three former J.P. Morgan employees, including the veteran head of the Precious Metals Desk, the most ambitious government effort yet in the crackdown on market manipulation and spoofing. Joining me is Bloomberg Special Metals reporter Eddie Spence, who's covering the trial. 
tell me a little bit about who these defendants are. Basically, all three of these guys work for J.P. Morgan. One of them, uh, Mike Novak, used to run the precious metals business at J.P. Morgan, which is by far the, the biggest precious metals business, uh, a commercial bank in the world, pretty much. So you can really think of Mike Novak as the top guy in the entire gold market. And along with him is uh, Greg Smith, who was Mike Novak's top trader, and uh, Jeffrey Rufo, who used to handle sales to hedge funds like More Capital and Tudor. So really, really big players in the context of this market. The prosecution's attempt yes. to prove a criminal conspiracy here, is that a reach? It's really difficult to say at this point, um, but it's a pretty crucial part of their indictment. So in trying to prove a criminal conspiracy, what they're trying to do is stand up the, the RICO charges they've, they've put against them, which are they're basically charges that are usually used against like mafias and gangs, and they're applying it to white-collar crime, essentially. So it makes it very interesting, and it also makes the, the kind of sentences these guys might get significantly more severe and gives the prosecution a lot more leeway when it comes to introducing evidence. And also a lot more kind of pop with the jury. You know, if you're being told that J.P. Morgan traders are equivalent to, you know, the Gambino crime family or something like that, that's a pretty striking thing that that gives it a bit more jury appeal. So tell me about the prosecution's case here. So basically what they uh, are trying to prove is that these three guys conspired to spoof precious metals markets, uh, in this case gold and silver, over the course of about eight years. So spoofing is a form of market manipulation where basically you show the market huge false orders on one side in order to get your orders that are smaller on the other side filled by the participants. It's considered these days essentially a form of fraud because you're basically misleading the market about what your true trading intentions are in order to move prices. So what the prosecutors are basically trying to prove is that over eight years, these guys use spoofing to essentially enrich themselves, enrich their clients, and also to enrich the precious metals desk. And what does the defense appear to be? So the defense in these type of cases, a lot of the time it's focused around intent. So basically what they say is these markets move incredibly fast, partly thanks you know, the advent of algorithmic trading. So it's necessary for traders to cancel sometimes when they feel like an algorithm is trying to piggyback off them. It really is that crucial point of intent, basically whether these guys intended to spoof the markets when they were placing these orders or whether they were canceling them for legitimate reasons. And there are legitimate reasons to cancel orders after you've placed them, but you can't intend to cancel them before you place them. So that's what the defense is really going to focus on. That intent point is quite important because in previous cases, a lot of the time what it's come down to is, you know, a Bloomberg message or, you know, a WhatsApp text or something like that, where one of the defendants has kind of explicitly said that he knows what he's doing is is illegal or, you know, that he actually intends to cancel the orders. But that's the real crucial point is intent. Among the first witnesses was a former trader who made a plea deal with the government, John Edmonds. So John Edmonds was an interesting one. At the time he was working with these guys at J.P. Morgan, he was quite a junior trader. I guess what was striking in his testimony is he seemed to suggest that he was basically just taking part in what was considered standard practice on the desk for his entire career. And he said he knew it was wrong, but to an extent, the fact that everyone else was doing it made him feel like he didn't really have a choice but to to do the spoofing. You know, I mean, he had a pretty great career ahead of him. Um, and, you know, these days he's a car salesman because of this. That that was pretty striking. The defense tried to attack his credibility, Edmund's credibility on Cross. How did that go? That was a pretty interesting moment. So what they were basically doing was bringing up a previous civil case regarding spoofing involving J.P. Morgan, where uh, it turns out that 
John Edmonds had lied basically about what the reason was for one of his colleagues being fired. It turned out the reason was spoofing, but he said he, he lied because his attorney told him to do so. And obviously, as soon as you start lying under oath, you know, even in a civil case, that really does affect your credibility. It was interesting in that moment because the courtroom got quite heated, uh, mm-hmm. shall we say, as the kind of defence laid in, into Edmonds in that case. And it was a really long cross-examination as well, so it was pretty gruelling for, for Edmonds. Do you have any inkling as to whether any of the defendants is going to testify? We don't at this stage. Essentially, the reason being the defence can wait until the prosecution rests their case before they make that decision. <laughs> I've asked the defence lawyers about this. Um, that's what they've essentially told me. It will depend on how the prosecution's case goes and whether the defence lawyers feel like they need to put up the defendants to, I guess, have a, a better chance of getting a not guilty verdict. Thanks so much. That's Eddie Spence, Bloomberg Precious Metals reporter. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.